Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. My recommendation this month is Dynasty by Tom Holland, the story of the Julio-Claudians. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to listen to it today. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 92, questions 3. For the third century in a row, here is an episode devoted entirely to answering your questions. Listener G asks, do you think the theme system was a more robust defensive strategy than the earlier field army model? Or was it only successful because of the reduced circumstances of the Romans? Since I started researching the history of Byzantium, I have to say my favourite period has been the rise of the Arab Caliphate and the collapse of the Roman world. We know so little about what exactly went on that the possibilities are endless and the little scraps of evidence left behind are so tantalising. I get the impression that some listeners still struggle with the idea that Rome could collapse so completely and the Arabs rise with equal swiftness. And I think the speed of Byzantium's fall is a warning from history. A state can survive one major crisis, but given no time to recover, it can disappear quickly if another crisis appears with equal force. The Romans were down on the canvas multiple times during their history. The sack of the city in 390 BC, Hannibal, the civil wars... Each time, the government found the breathing room necessary to drag itself back up and carry on fighting. It took great skill and resilience and will, but the breathing room allowed it to happen. The Romans only survived the crisis of the 3rd century because the empire was so big. Two-thirds of its territory could be in utter chaos, but as long as one segment remained calm, the troops and administrators of that area could restore order to the others. By 600 AD, Byzantium was a smaller place. The breathing space was more limited. The empire was severely weakened by plague and war. The Arabs attacked at the perfect moment and quite unexpectedly proved to be unstoppable. The Arabs themselves were as surprised as anyone at just how successful they were. 
and once the caliphate had been established, people just adapted to their new paymasters. Soldiers needed work, so they fought for the conquerors. Their sense of national pride in being Persian or Roman was not nearly as developed as we might think it was. Or perhaps a better explanation might be that the Arabs didn't seem as foreign or as heathen as we might think they were. I say all this because I think the answer to the question is that the theme system was all that was left of the Roman field armies. I don't think there was a choice to keep going on the old model. It seems like Constans II looked in the treasury and thought, there's no way I can afford to pay the army I have, let alone rebuild their strength. Leaving the armies to live in the provinces and defend them as best they could was all that could reasonably done. Constans tried to shore up the western provinces to protect the empire's dwindling wealth, but the Arabs were too strong to be stopped. And I think we have to concede that the theme armies did their job in part because the Arabs didn't have the political will to conquer Constantinople. They were heading toward that goal when Muawiyah died and the civil war which followed gave Romania some respite. Then the extremely bloody failure of the siege of 717 proved to be another serious impediment to Arab planning. But as I explained in in episode 82, which is now 83, it was the founding of Baghdad that saved Constantinople. The caliphate drifted away from the west and gave up the dream of capturing New Rome. If the Quran had said that Constantinople must be taken then I suspect it would have been. If the Arabs had put their minds to it, they would have colonised Anatolia and then slowly squeezed the life out of Byzantium. It would have been hard work, but they had the numbers and the resources to do it. What they didn't have was the will. It wasn't an important enough goal to justify the sacrifice needed to achieve it. So the themes did their job, but they can't claim all the glory. Listener G also asks, What's going on north of the Danube? Are the Avars still kicking around, waiting for the Magyars to show up? More or less, yes. As you now know, Avar power collapsed when Charlemagne sent forces onto the future Hungarian plain and crushed them. The main beneficiaries of this collapse were the Bulgars, who sent men north to take command of the vital grasslands. Presumably, the population left behind were incorporated into the Bulgar tribal system and carried on their lives much as they were living them under the Avars. Uh, By the way, this hasn't technically happened yet. Uh, Most of this action takes place in the first decade of the 9th century, but probably wouldn't crop up in our narrative. The Magyars, the actual Hungarians, are currently under the yoke of the Khazars, and beyond the Khazars are a troublesome Turkish tribe called the Pechenegs, and north of both are the Varangians, the Vikings, currently sacking sites on the coast of Britain. All three groups will play a big part in our story, but won't really come onto the radar until the second half of the 9th century. Listener A.R. asks if paganism still has a toehold in rural areas and whether the Bulgars and Khazars are pagan, Christian or Muslim at this point. 
There is a tradition that the Khazars converted to Judaism, but I am unaware of that being proven one way or the other. It's very hard to determine what non-literate populations believed. We rely largely on written accounts, almost always penned by members of the elite. However, whenever law codes or church councils have come up on the podcast, I've made a point of the repeated denunciations of pagan practices by the rural peasantry. That's the handy thing about lists of laws like these. They tell us what the priests and jurists of the day were complaining about. The major survivors of pagan practice were superstitions and festivals. Superstitions survive all sorts of civilizational change. They're in our bones. They tap into primal fears and are passed on from generation to generation, regardless of official doctrine. Festivals have similar staying power because the whole community enjoys them. It's hard to ban something that everyone loves. The festivals of the Kalans and the Brumalia were particularly enduring in Byzantium. Their original meaning was probably long forgotten by 800 AD, but the pleasure they brought was not. We also hear of local priests attending the killing of animals at weddings or funerals. The priests doubtless argued that these were not sacrifices to any particular deity, merely the creation of a meal for a community to share. But the muscle memory of the people still associated the sacrifice of an animal with significant life events. As with the origins of Islam, I think we have to remember that religion was far more fluid and far more local than we think of it today. Only literacy can bring uniformity. You need everyone reading the same Bible or same prayer book so that they can agree what is and isn't part of their faith. So in Byzantium, each region might understand their blend of Christianity and traditional beliefs a little differently. Historian Michael Angold explicitly says that for most people living in the country, church was there largely for big life events, like the pagan religion of old. Only the pious actually attended every Sunday. Though in the passage where he said that, he didn't elaborate on how he could possibly know that that was true for all. But one of the aims of the Byzantine Stories series uh, is to examine the accounts of everyday life and learn how ordinary Romans actually behaved. And we got a glimpse of this with John Chrysostom's congregation, but there will be plenty more to come. As for the Bulgars and Khazars, we know even less. Both groups had come out of the Gokturk Empire that had dominated the steppes in the 6th century. The Turks seemed to have favoured the cult of Tengri, the sky god, a deity who invested his heavenly mandate in the Khagan, or Khan. But steppe tribes were always agglomerations of people, so each empire may have had dozens of different pagan belief systems coexisting in their caravans. Certainly within the Bulgar lands, Christian Romans and pagan Slavs carried on their religious practices, as far as we know. As for the Khazar conversion to Judaism, 
The sources indicate that the Khazars did indeed announce officially that they had adopted the Jewish faith at some point in the 8th century. Quite why, or whether it really took hold, we don't know. All I will pass on is what is relevant to this podcast, and that's a comment by historian Mark Witto, who speculates why this choice would have been made. He says that by the 8th century, no state would have chosen to adopt Christianity as its religion because it so obviously produced defeat, whereas Islam was the faith of the victorious. But if Islam in the 8th century still looked quite Jewish to an outsider, as was suggested by several historians that I covered in the Origins of Islam episode, then perhaps the Khazars adopted the faith in their own way. To quote Mark Witto, the religion of the Arabs was in theory the religion of Abraham. It would not be surprising if the Khazars had adopted that religion, but unlike the Arabs, followed it to its logical conclusion by becoming Jews. Don't take that as fact, though. It's merely another suggestion that religions are far more flexible and organic than our textbooks may have led us to believe. Listener SK asks whether there was any group of Christians advocating religious tolerance, and indeed pointing out that Rome was more powerful as a state when it adopted a tolerant attitude toward belief. I can't speak for uh, (laughs) the uh, Christians of Anatolia or individual priests, but in terms of the senior hierarchy who left uh, books and uh, writings and sermons behind, I would say the short answer is no. And the long answer is, I don't know if Rome was more tolerant in its past. I mean, why were Roman Christians so intolerant? They believed that they had a monopoly on truth, that Jesus had brought a truth that would please God, and God blessed the Romans for enforcing that truth. If the Romans sat back and allowed blasphemy to spread, surely God would be angry with them. What kind of person allows a liar to walk around spreading lies when he knows the truth? The Romans of the pagan empire sort of felt the same way, didn't they? It's just that their truth was that the Roman way of life was best. When minorities fought against that, be they Jews, Christians, or political independence movements, they were brutally suppressed. Julius Caesar slaughtered thousands of Gauls and seems to have slept fine at night, presumably because he was confident that they would be better off under Roman rule just as Charlemagne lined up Saxon prisoners and forced them to convert or die. I know it's simplifying a complex issue, but I'm not sure there's a huge difference between Old and New Rome when it comes to enforcing their truth. Roman polytheism accepted other cults into its temples, but if you didn't sacrifice to the Caesars, then you were not tolerated. Each time we've discussed an ecumenical council, there's been a huge amount of politics involved alongside the theology. Byzantine emperors and patriarchs were trying to create a truth that everyone could agree to. In a way, they were more tolerant than the pagans of old because they less often slaughtered their enemies for disagreeing. May not be 
the answer you were looking for, but maybe it's food for thought. Several listeners had questions about daily life, including music, art, sport, fashion, food and drink. I will kick music into the long grass for now and have a look at that in more detail later. Not exactly my area of expertise. I covered food and fashion a little when we looked around a typical farm a few episodes ago. And as you know, details of peasant life are limited. A distinction between the poor and wealthy when it comes to dress seems to have been the wearing of trousers. For everyday life, it seems trousers were now a common and popular item, whereas for the elites of Constantinople, flowing robes and an occasional toga would mark out your status. But I'm sure the rich wore trousers as well. Uh, They certainly seem to uh, when riding horses into battle and that kind of thing. Uh, As mentioned previously, most villages would have a tailor who would create and repair garments, while in bigger cities, merchants brought fabrics to shops to be worked up into saleable items. Clothes were generally made from wool, linen, and leather, while the rich still lusted after silk. Cotton was slowly making its way through the caliphate toward Europe, but would not become a common source of clothing for some time. Listener CWF asked about what the Romans did about the foulness of milk and water. In the case of milk, they either drank it soon after milking or turned it into butter and cheese. In the case of water, they boiled it and perhaps filtered it a little depending on local techniques. I will have a look into alcohol beyond basic wine and beer but I'm not aware at this stage of any laws about contracts made while drunk, as apparently existed in Anglo-Saxon culture. He also asked about the races. Uh, Yes, they were still popular in Constantinople, the only city capable of staging them regularly. I don't know enough about life in Thessalonica to say how long they continued there. It certainly seems that the races took place less often at the capital, which makes sense given the collapse of the city's population during the 7th century. The status of the blues and greens had gone with it. In their heyday, they were made up of unemployed thugs and rich dilettantes. But since the abolition of the bread doll and the loss of the eastern provinces, neither group really lived on the streets anymore. The circus factions were now subsidised by the state, to provide entertainment and acclamations at official events. Of course, this access to palace life meant that in a reduced way, the deems could still play a part in imperial politics. It was they who helped blind Vardan the Armenian during one of the seven emperor coups. But they were no longer the rabble-rousers they'd once been. In terms of other sports, certainly the emperors continued to enjoy hunting, whereas for the ordinary Roman, dice, checkers and backgammon were all played regularly, but in slightly different forms than today. Uh, Gaming boards have been found scratched into roof tiles and into courtyards. Chess was known, but mainly amongst the elite. Tic-tac-toe, or noughts and crosses, was very popular, and apparently the most common variant was one you might know as Nine Men's Morris. I've put a picture and a link to the rules at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, 
and on social media. Listener Jay and listener Imp asked more about the practice of blinding. As I've covered on the podcast already, blinding was a solution to a problem. How can I get rid of an emperor or a usurper, but avoid the whole thou shalt not kill thing? Blinding fit nicely with societal norms and Christian doctrine. Nowhere did it say that the emperor must not have any physical blemishes, but it was just common sense that God wouldn't want a deformed or mutilated person on the throne. What God did want was for you to repent and ask forgiveness for your sins. So blinding an enemy was also an act of mercy, allowing them time to save their soul. Blinding and other disfigurements were then written into the Ecloi, the law code introduced by Leo III. Strangely, a couple of historical sources suggest blinding was done by forcing the victim to stare into some acidic water, or a heated mirror, or something equally implausible. Instead, I assume the eyes were just scooped out or scorched with a poker. Let's not think too much about it, though. Quite what happened to Constantine the Sixth, we'll never know. But listener Jay asked why he didn't survive his blinding when others did. Uh, this is assuming that Irene didn't tell them to, you know, blind him, and I don't mind if it goes horribly wrong. But assuming that wasn't the case, then infection is the most likely cause of death. The limits of Byzantine medicine were regularly tested by nasty wounds, and if a blinding or a nose-slitting was done too enthusiastically, the wound might not heal properly, and then infections would spread and death would follow. Listeners PK, T, NM and CWF all asked about China and trade with the East. Economic information is seriously limited, but my assumption is that the trade changed quite dramatically with the rise of the caliphate. The Persians had needed Roman markets to make a profit on the goods they received from the east, but I suspect the Arabs had a big enough internal market to not fret about sending wares on to Constantinople. Traders still brought things to the capital, of course, but War was disruptive, and the routes far less secure than they had been. The impoverishment of Byzantium also meant there was less demand. As a result of all this, I think it's safe to say that the Byzantines knew almost nothing of China. They knew it existed, but I don't think they'd have had the slightest idea of what it was like, or who was ruling. Certainly there was no formal contact, and probably at the other end the Chinese and the Indians had little knowledge of the actual life of Constantinople. Despite this, items still made their way back and forth. Indian spices and Chinese silk remained prized commodities. From this period, a Tang-era marble vessel was found in a Byzantine fortress in Greece, which is an interesting survival, but... Beyond that, I don't think there's a lot to say. On a related note, listener NM asks whether the name Roman would still enjoy prestige in places outside of the empire. This is a total guess on my part, but I suspect only in northern and western Europe was that the case. 
place is now on the other side of the caliphate, no longer thought much about the Byzantines. By this I largely mean the African traders of the Nile or Sahara, or the traders of spices coming to Egypt from India. I think their knowledge of the world was limited to the people they actually saw, who were now all within the caliphate. The more time passed, the more memories of Rome would fade. I'm not sure about Aksum, as in Ethiopia, the one Christian kingdom outside of the Roman orbit. If anyone knows more about that, let me know. Meanwhile, as we've seen, respect for the Roman Empire continued in Europe for a long time. During this period, the historian Bede, in England, uh, synchronised his Universal Chronicle with Byzantine imperial years. While the use of Byzantine texts for Mass, imported from Rome, meant that priests in some parts of France still prayed for the Emperor. The final question for today comes from listener RB, who asks, what stories you've covered on this podcast do you think would make a good movie or miniseries? Given my love of American TV shows, I could spend a whole 45 minutes musing about the possibilities, but I won't. Uh, What I will say is that I have rarely seen a non-sci-fi battle depicted dramatically on either big or small screen. Uh, It tends to just be chaos and random violence with little in the way of emotional hooks. And uh, I am all about emotional hooks. So to commission a Justinian or Heraclius show immediately hits this problem for me. I think Heraclius fighting in Persia could be the right length for a film or for a one-season HBO series, but you'd need a huge budget. Justinian's story is complicated in part because he lives for so long. Are you going to cast someone in their 30s or 40s and then start aging them with makeup and prosthetics or whatever? And what's that story about? If you want to tell a kind of decline and fall, I think it's going to be depressing. And I can't actually think of specific dramatic incidents involving characters, and it's all about characters. You can do an episode about the plague, and that might be very interesting, but If there's no one dying who you know, I don't think audiences are going to care. And not many of the main characters in Justinian's story died in interesting ways. Uh, Most of them lived to old age and died in bed. Um, That doesn't really fit the modern death procedural show, which The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones have gotten us used to. I'll tell you whose story totally fits with the anti-hero drama of our age, and that's Flavius Aetius the half-Roman, half-barbarian general of the 5th century. He rises to be a senior general, loses a civil war, returns backed by the Huns, and essentially takes over the Western Empire. He faces down Attila, and is then stabbed to death by the Emperor Valentinian. That story has everything, and because he's not famous, you might actually get an audience to be surprised by the twists and turns. A few things before we close. Listener TM sent in a correction to something I said in episode 14. I said that the Byzantines believed that some relics and icons could heal the sick or perform other miracles, but that this had no biblical basis. However, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, it says 
So extraordinary were the mighty deeds God accomplished at the hands of Paul, that when face cloths or aprons that touched his skin were applied to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So there you go. I also want to return to the Constantine acronym, or acrostic, or mnemonic, that I mentioned back in episode 76. Several brave listeners have come forward with suggestions, and I've posted two of them on social media and the website to give you all an idea. Uh, I'll keep updating it each century, but uh, listener JF created one that allows us to use plenty of detail. So, Constantine the Great was first, he built the imperial city. Constantine II died young, his three-year reign gave pity. Constantine the Fourth reigned long, his son's nose was slit. Constantine the Fifth broke idols and gave the Bulgars well, you get the idea. While listener SM went for short and memorable, so Christianized the Roman state, oldest of three heirs of the great, never made it past month four, stopped the Arabs at the door. Theophanes called him dung, assassinated by his mum. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much to those who've taken part. I think we're well on the way to something special. That's it for this episode and almost for our end of the century tour. Following listener ALMW's suggestion, the next episode will be a little recap and precap, just so that you feel refreshed and can declutter your mind for the narrative to resume. It won't be a long reiteration of details, don't worry. I think you'll find it very useful in setting up events in the year 802 AD, which we will be experiencing very soon. While you're waiting for that, why not check out Tom Holland's new book, Dynasty? You've heard Tom Holland on the show, and you know he's a very smart guy. But you might be thinking, oh, I know that story well. I don't need more Tiberius in my life. But I'm looking forward to hearing it. Here's a short clip of Tom talking on the BBC's History Extra podcast. Yes, I do. I, I think that um, in the case of Caligula, uh, there was a calculated decision on his part that was not at all insane, was very in a sense, very, very shrewd, very intelligent. I think Caligula was a, was a terrifyingly intelligent man. His aim was to push to the absolute outer limits of what a person in his position could do. Hmm. Caligula intelligent. He says Nero is highly intelligent too, which is not the usual tone taken with them. I'm sure Tom has something interesting to offer. And if you'd like to hear it for free and support the podcast, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to start your 30 day free trial.